Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Welcome. I'm Terry Sultan. I'm the director here at the Parish Art Museum, and I I'm thrilled to see you all here. It's really, really nice to have you all here tonight. Part of the whole reason that we love our partnership with these guys is because we don't believe that visual arts exist in a vacuum. It's about art, it's about science, it's about music, it's about literature, it's about language, it's about how we live in the world today. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Corinne Ernie, who is our senior curator for Arts Eastern Special Projects, who's going to fill you in on what's going to happen tonight and introduce our speakers. So please welcome Corinne. Good evening. Thank you for coming out. I'm very pleased to present the second pop sci at the parish, and that's a wonderful collaboration with Brookhaven National Lab. This is our second one, uh, the second year that we're doing this. Thank you very much uh, to the whole team of Brookhaven. And I know our, wor our worlds are sometimes quite separate, but when they do collide, some pretty amazing things can happen. And that's what you're going to uh, see and learn tonight. The topic is nanoscience. And like most of you probably, I didn't know what that means either. But these guys will tell you all about it and how artists and scientists can explore the topic and really create some wonderful works. The evening will be moderated by Justin Ewer. He's sitting here getting ready. And he'll keep it all together. So after we're done with the panel, there will be a little change over the turnover because we are moving the dance party into this room. Uh, so go look at the, the Frankenthaler show, get some beer and wine, and then you must come back. You absolutely must come back because it's Paul Miller's birthday, a.k.a. Uh, DJ Spooky, and he's playing for you tonight. So thank you. All right, everybody. Welcome to PubSci. So... First, huge thanks to the parish for hosting us. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks to all of you for coming out on a rainy evening for a conversation about nanoscience and soundscapes and music and sculpture. And doesn't that just sound ridiculous that that's what we're gonna be talking about and that we have these people here with us to discuss it. So very briefly before we jump into that, I'm gonna talk about Brookhaven National Laboratory, who we are, what we do, and why PubSci is even a thing. So, Brookhaven, who here is a show of hands, who's been to visit Brookhaven Lab? All right, not bad. So those of you who haven't should find a way to go. During the summer, there's Sundays where you can actually get up close and personal with a lot of these facilities. And it's like walking onto a science fiction set. Brookhaven is strange and, and amazing. It's like a little town nestled here on, on Long Island. But this, this town, it's got 5,000 acres of land, Thousands of people working there, thousands more visiting every year from around the world, hundreds of buildings, fire department, police department, post office. But this particular town is interesting. It exists exclusively to discover, to push the frontiers of science. Everyone there is dedicated to that mission, that vision of learning more. And Brookhaven's been doing that since 1947. So we're past 70 years, and obviously in seven decades, a lot has changed, right? So we're not doing the same kinds of science. Things that are happening at the lab now weren't even possible 20 years ago, much less 70. So there's a two and a half mile ring at the north end of the campus. This is the relativistic heavy ion collider, where we melt 
the hearts of atoms at temperatures 250,000 times hotter than the center of the sun. There's the National Synchrotron Light Source 2, NSLS 2, which is the world's brightest light source. And what that means is we can see inside materials at the molecular scale and beyond, right? So we can see the way a battery discharges and recharges and degrades. We can optimize solar cells and understand how they work. We can probe biological materials. And there's the Center for Functional Nanomaterials, which we'll hear quite a bit more about. We've got one of our scientists up here tonight works there. And that's where they create and characterize materials that span just billionths of a meter. And billions of meters, like, what does that mean? You're going to find out. We're going to talk about it. We're going to make it real, and we're going to make it meaningful. Uh, and so all of those amazing things, and that's just the start, those are possible because the US Department of Energy funds Brookhaven and charged the lab with asking the biggest questions imaginable. So this is everything from what did the universe look like at the dawn of time to how do we sustainably power the future, right? And since it's Department of Energy, that means indirectly, Brookhaven is possible because of all of you. So you, taxpayers, residents, you should know about what's happening here on the island. There's a responsibility for us to take those stories, to bring them to you, to have scientists and collaborators come forward, share their tales so you can celebrate that, be a part of it. And that's what we're gonna do. The parish pub size are, are special. Usually we're crowded into a bar and it's like really dense and intimate and I don't know, more booze is flowing. <laughs> but but the, one of the things I love about these parish ones is that we really get to look at the surprising and deep parallels between artists and scientists, the passion that drives them, the way they explore new horizons, the way they push into new territory, that all that happens. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And before we dive in, I'm going to propose a toast. This is a, a tradition at pub size. Usually we're at a bar, right? So it makes a little more sense. But there is alcohol, and you should, you know, help yourselves. So I'm going to wind back the clock. And just so you know, this is the most that I'm going to talk all night. Then I'm going to get out of the way. So, yeah, there we go. Kevin, helping everybody out. Um, so, 1969, that's where we're going to go back. So Robert Wilson, who was the director of another national laboratory, Fermi, at the time, was asked by Congress why they should invest in a new collider, kind of like the one that we have at Brookhaven. And when he was really pressed, when he was pushed on, on the value and how it would help out America, he didn't just talk about the science. Right? He didn't talk about deepening our knowledge of the universe. He didn't talk about job creation or technology spinoff. He said, like, do we want to be a nation of great poets, artists, sculptors? And that he equated in one breath those arts with deep fundamental science. So that there's something deep and rich and singular about the way these people explore our relationship to the world. Um, and he recognized that, that those, that those investments made the country worth living in, worth fighting for. So with that in mind, a quick toast if you'll raise your glasses, your cans, your bottles, whatever you have, to finding meaning. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, this is a fun one. So we have, <laughs> there's a lot going on over here <laughs> with Meg. Uh, and before we introduce everybody and we, and we you know, really get in the weeds, Let's talk about the idea of sonification, and rather than talk about it, let's just listen to it and hear what that's like. Paul, why don't you, why don't you take us there? Okay. First and foremost, everybody, thanks for the birthday event, which is, I, I can't believe I'm 49. Wow. So cheers to that. Woo -woo. Thanks. Wow. All right. All 
All right, so if we can call up my iPad, if you just want to click on that. All right, so behind me is a term called sinuosity. Now, amusingly enough, it has a sort of linguistic pun here of also sensuous. So the idea of sort of tactile and actually engaging with the physical sense of movement that all of the human beings do every day. But if we dive a little deeper, what's fun and beautiful about it is also the root term of um, when we start thinking about sine waves, which is also sound. So behind me, there's a basic calculation of sinuosity for an oscillating curve. And when you start thinking about waveforms, that's what sound is. If you hear my voice, if you hear these speakers. So all of this is kind of amazingly related to nature. So if you ever see a river from above, for example, the way the water currents work and the way the actual turbulence works, as some people would call a chaotic system. But pi, uh, because it's the, the circumference and ratio you know, to diameter, the ratio of diameter to the circumference of a circle, it's one of the few constants in the universe that's considered one of the most important uh, mathematical structures human beings have engaged. So the number pi, to me, is one of those beautiful things. Also, Einstein was born, if you, you, know, if you go back to 3, 15, 14, 3, 14, there's a kind of a whole layer of sense of humor about linguistics, about the notion of like, the universe, and about circularity. So this idea of loops and how we think about sound. So, when Justin and crew got in touch, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was sort of walk you guys through a little bit of sound as kind of a pun here. So Einstein, of course, considered one of the giants of the 20th century, but he was also really fascinated with interdisciplinary approaches to things. So this is him when he was backstage at the Nobel Prize Awards, which, you know, it's like backstage at a, at a concert, you know, you're hanging out. And he happened to meet one of India's most renowned poets, uh, Rabindranath Tagore. And they ended up having a conversation about mathematics and poetry. And they ended up writing a book together called On the Nature of Reality. So to me, this is a great sense of a collaboration that is, at least from my perspective, like what tonight's about. When you have people from radically different backgrounds get together and say, let's figure out some fun stuff. So these two guys, the reason this is going back to Pi, Einstein really got into a series of disputes with one, another renowned mathematician named Niels Bohr, which I think, uh, Kevin, we're going to probably unpack that a little later. But Niels Bohr coined the term quantum mechanics. And so the fun part about quantum, of course, it means the root word is quanta, you know, so it means breaking into fragments. So we're looking at um, sound waves. I want to just walk you guys back in time a little bit. This is the internet circa 1969. <laughs> now, the internet was started in 1969, so this year is the 50th anniversary, and I'm going to be doing a series of initiatives celebrating what 50 years of the internet has done to society. So you can see that these are points in connection, right? And once you start applying the law of exponential growth or large numbers, you can actually begin to start thinking about how this notion of the internet became basically the foundation of our society now. We're now in a data-driven society. And these kind of things still circulate back to pi because we're looking at proportions, ratios, large numbers. So if you calculate out the number pi, it's basically 0 0.314, blah, blah, blah. So what we're going to do is do an acoustic interpretation of that. Uh, Meg is going to improvise, and I'm, I've happened to have taken the liberty to um, use a schematic. And you're going to see this uh, pi and bass 10 and a C major chord. So hopefully the sound is up and we're good. Let's see. OK, one second. All right, one. And we're going to bounce the volume up. Here we go.
I'm going to interrupt. Okay. This is lovely. I mean, I would listen to that all night. But we have so much to, to talk about. You literally could listen to it all night. Yeah, um, there you go. So it's a yeah. eternal loop, right? Yeah, done. So what you were just hearing, yeah, thank you, Meg. Hey. Yeah, and I should, I want to add that um, <laughs> Paul, when we were talking about what, the, what tonight was going to look like, was mentioned that it would be great to have a cellist who could perform alongside his interpretation of Pi. And Meg was like, what about me? Because she just happened to have that skill. So. Yeah. <laughs> So that was kind of pi calculated out to many, many um, kind of decimal points and so on. But the fun part about um, art and science is that there's an intuitive relationship to how people look at pattern recognition. So what she was playing was improvised in the data set of the major key of C. And so being able to pick and choose those notes and the way that she was thinking about it. Amusing enough, in the late 60s, there was a group of artists who did a project called Art Plus Science at the Armory. So you had Robert Rauschenberg, you had Morris Cunningham, you had John Cage and a lot of artists and then scientists from IBM would come through and then they would do projects together. So that's kind of what tonight's about. And I'm, later on I'm gonna unpack why I'm beginning the evening thinking about these world of large numbers by showing you this internet in 1969. So it's a little bit of a teaser, but let's leave that question hanging in the air about pi, Perfect. cellos, and math. Thanks. Glorious. Um, okay, so that's, so that's a taste of what sonification might look like, right? And now we're gonna sort of wind it back and start with the data and go through that whole process. But first, let's actually meet everybody who's up here. So we're gonna go, we'll run down the line. We'll start with you, Meg, if you'll, um, she's just gonna tell us who she is, what she does, and then uh, a moment when she knew what she wanted to do or felt that compulsion to be what she is. Hi, so I am Margaret Chadell and I am mainly a composer and I program computers to understand artistic input and then I manipulate audio according to that input. I started on piano because I had small motor control problems and blind in one eye and my doctor rather than saying physical therapy he was like well stutterers can sing so maybe if you took piano lessons you could learn sort of proprioception. My piano teacher at one point told me I should take up a string instrument to develop my ear, and I fell in love with the cello completely. Uh, it was a way that I could manipulate the timbre over time. Like, so piano, you just kind of go ding, there it is. And cello, I can do all this fun stuff. And then I got into electronic music. I am now an associate professor with tenure at Stony Brook University. I teach others how to do this, and this year I was elected the chair of the Department of Art. So I sort of have a cross-disciplinary background. All right, uh, my name's Kevin Yeager. I'm a chemist by training, but I sometimes call myself a physicist these days, although I spend a lot it's of my a, days- It's just a free-for-all, right? It's a free chemist for all. Today. I don't worry about labels. I spend most of my day programming computers, so maybe I'm a computer scientist, I don't know. It, so I'm a scientist. I work, as Justin said, at Brookhaven National Lab in the Center for Functional Nanomaterials. So I do nanoscience, nanotechnology. I hope to give you a flavor tonight of what that means and sort of what we, what we, why we care about nanoscience, what we're doing in that area. I think part of your question was how did I develop this passion for science, and at least for me, it was very much lifelong. In other words, I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't interested in science and wasn't convinced that I was going to be a scientist. So from the youngest age I can remember, I was like, reading science books, and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And it was really just a matter of picking like what slice of science I was going to do. Is it going to be chemistry, physics, or math? And as I already said, I kind of ended up doing a little bit of everything. So uh, that's, that's my answer. Perfect. Hi, I'm Melissa Clark. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary artist, for whatever that means. And We're going to find out what that means. Yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna I always it. try to explain. It's also the other thing that I have, the uh, 
the colon uh, experiential designer. Um, so I do spend a lot of time also taking architects' drawings and then experience, uh, doing, uh, designing often permanent experiences in, in large spaces. So, and that informs my art, and my art informs that, and I like that discipline as part of my practice. I had no idea I would be working with technology or science growing up. I always was an artist. I was always making things and making installations, drawing and whatnot. I am dyslexic. I think Meg here too, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really write and I was bad at math. And one time my math teacher said, or I thought I was bad at math. My math teacher said to me, you know, you're doing this in a completely different way. It's interesting what you're doing. It's not the right way, but it's very interesting. <laughs> Long story short, when I went, I ended up going to ITP at a certain point because I started getting interested in data and science in my art, which we'll talk about more later, which is the interactive telecommunications program at NYU. And I started to learn programming and engineering, Raspberry Pi, stuff like that. And I realized that I was actually pretty good at this stuff. And that people who are dyslexic are very good at pattern recognition and can be good programmers because although you're seeing math in a different way and you may not be a calculator and get the right answer right away, you're able to pull that apart and be creative with it. So it wasn't until really grad school that I really got the idea that I would be creative with um, technology. And since then, it's just been a really fun ride working with these folks. Okay, let's see. I'm probably the wild card here. Can we switch the photo? <laughs> there's, there's definitely, um, I'm with you on that. Yeah, or just call my iPad. All right, you can just switch to my iPad. I'll, I'll kind of a little background here. Let's see. All right, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and both my parents were professors, so I kind of grew up in a household that valued information quite extensively. And my father was dean of Howard University's law school, and my mom was a historian of design. So basically, growing up in D.C., this is a, you know, near DuPont Circle. That's my family. Basically, um, let's see. I went to Bowdoin College in Maine. It's the Little Ivies. Um, most of my friends at Yale were partying too much. And let's see, I, I never really was planning on being a DJ, per se. I was starting as an artist. And I uh, showed with Jeffrey Deitch in New York, Anita Nose, Paula Cooper, Robert Miller Gallery. I'm, my, recently, I'm an artist in residence at Google. So um, Google has a new foundation called Google Humanities that's encouraging artists to use data. And I'm their first artist in residence. So we're going to be doing a series of initiatives about climate and data and chaotic systems and data, so how people think about like, say, for example, I'm really fascinated with desertification. And some of the other projects I'm going to talk about today are I took a studio uh, to Antarctica and went to several of the main ice fields and did what I call acoustic portraits of ice. And this was presented at many museums and galleries. The current project I'm presenting right now is called Quantopia, which is uh, in celebration of what 50 years of the internet has done to society. So there we go. Glorious. Oh, and, and I'm a DJ. Just, and you know, you know just a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I'm Justin, and kind of like, <laughs> hey, it's Yay! me. Um, so kind of like Melissa, I, it wasn't until grad school that I, I was studying journalism and had a conversation with a physicist. And he was working at CERN on the Large Hadron Collider. And this was you know, approaching the discovery. It was approaching the, uh, the first collisions at the LHC when I met him. And I was incredibly envious that he was doing what he was doing, but was not going to go back to school. <laughs> and so decided that I would just stick with communications and try to help scientists and artists tell their stories and be on that end, which is why and how I have the privilege of being here with them, just to help connect some dots and MC a little bit. So that's who you got. Now, let's, uh, let's go ahead. We've got, I mean, we've set it up, right? We're talking about how we're going to take data 
and how we take science and how you can turn that into other meaningful forms, how you can interpret it. And it's, you could do it in an infinite number of ways. And these collaborations come out in really surprising ways. And we're gonna talk about a few specific things that are going on, but let's lay that science foundation first. So Kevin, that means it's your time to shine. Okay. So uh, let's, uh, let's talk about nanoscience. And which may, so who's familiar with the idea of nanoscience, nanotechnology? Okay. Oh. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's, that's, that's good. So Kevin, let's start out with the basics and with just how big is a nanometer and then why should we be exploring that arena? Right. Oh, yeah. So this is a good little movie. So, I mean, nanoscience and nanotechnology is all about studying things on this ultra-small scale. This, this visualization is just zooming in from the macro scale through to things like, that's a human hair, and these are like, this is pollen, and these are single cells, which are micro but not nano. You have to go even smaller and deeper to get to the nano scale. These are now viruses, this is a, a virus, and these are some protein molecules, and this is, you're finally getting down to the nano scale. So the nanoscale is, is this scale that's extremely small. These are individual atoms in the molecule here. It's a scale that's really, really small, but bigger than individual atoms, but much smaller than everything else. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds in terms of complexity, because it's very, very small and hard to work with, but it's not just a single atom that is at least a simple you know, unitary object. It's these complicated constructs of atoms that are at this really small scale, and you're trying to understand how they work. And but having said all that, so nanoscience is the science of the very small, well, who cares? I mean, it's just, uh, just do your normal science, but just do it smaller, right? <laughs> just, just try harder. Um, but, but in nanoscience, when we, we, what we like to say is that it's not just a matter of being small, it's, the, it's that the, the systems behave differently at the small scale. So to give you an example, at the macro scale, we're sort of used to things like gravity is a very important force, whereas like electromagnetism seems less important, like static electricity seems very weak compared to gravity. Uh, but at the nanoscale, it's sort of the opposite. Gravity is very irrelevant, whereas these electromagnetic forces, these quantum forces, they rule the day. Um, and so you have to think about matter very differently when you're at this scale. And that's a challenge in terms of how we understand materials at these scales, but it's the corresponding opportunity that if you can understand that, you can get materials with you know, record-setting strength, or you can create a battery with record-setting uh, capacity, and you know, all these kind of sci-fi things that you might imagine. Nanoscience is one of the ways that we want to get there. Does so, that, does that yeah, make sense? Right? Um, one of my favorite ways to think about the nanoscale is if you look at your fingernail for one second, it grows about one nanometer, right? It's going to be, a, you know, maybe for some of you it's like three or two and a half, but generally that's what it is. Like it's a completely imperceptible scale that Kevin works on. So what, what about working on that scale? I mean, you said it was the worst of both worlds, but why, why do you like to be in that world? What keeps you in it? Well, so again, it's the worst of both worlds in terms of it being difficult, but the, it's the best in terms of the opportunity that you have this, uh, uh, I mean, I, again, so from a per, at a personal level, when I was young, you know, I was interested in science very broadly, but at some point I read this book on uh, the engines of creation by Drexler on kind of like what is, you know, this hypothetical future where you have the nanoscience and nanotechnology fully figured out and all the things that you could do with it. And, there's this, there's this vision of like nanorobots in your bloodstream that can cure diseases and these ultra strong materials that you know, allow you to do things you can't do today. So all those kinds of sci-fi things are what excited me about studying this particular branch of science. Um, does, that, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, so you're with us so far? Oh, and I should, have, I should have emphasized at the beginning that PubSci is a very informal event. So if you have questions, speak. Share your questions, uh, raise a hand if you want to explore something, if 
we were confusing in some way or seemed to gloss over a detail. Yes. How do you see things? <gasps> what a yeah. lovely question. How do you see so, things? Yeah, so there's, and there's no single answer to it. So you can't, you can't do the normal things you might want to do. You can, you can look at it with your eyes, that's not good enough. You can use like a magnifying glass. That'll get you to a certain point, but not, light, light essentially has a certain characteristic size that's even bigger than the nanoscale. So you can't actually use visible light to look at the nanoscale. So what do you do instead? And the answer is we have all these sophisticated tools for doing it. And we can maybe talk, we'll be showing different data sets to give examples throughout uh, maybe the rest of the evening, but I'll just give you one or two quick examples. So one example is in an optical microscope, you're using light to look at small things like single cells, uh, you know, red blood cells and whatnot. We have another instrument called an electron microscope where you take electrons, these ultra small particles, and you create a beam of them and shoot them at a, at a sample. So this is an image coming from one of these scanning electron microscopes. So you take this focused beam of electrons, scan it around, and you measure how many electrons are scattered back at each position. And you basically reconstruct this image that's very analogous to what you would see in an optical microscope, but it's using electrons that are much, much smaller than light. So all the things you can imagine doing with light, you can do with electrons at a smaller scale. It's just more complicated because the lenses, instead of being made of glass, they're, made of, they're essentially magnetic coils and so on and so forth. So I don't know if that fully answers the question, but it gives you a hint of the, the way that we can kind of see things at a yeah, small scale. And hold that question because the idea that we can see this in different ways is sort of central to, to some of what we're going to explore in, in just a bit. Right. Yeah, because to just plant a seed for later, this is an image that we generate, but that's only one way to represent the image or the data, if you will. And so we have these data sets that then we can then, we as scientists can play with and try and visualize, and then we can also hand it off to artists and see what they can come with, up with in terms of visualizing the, the data. Why you got to be ocular centric? You can also sonify the data and, and yeah. sit that what? what is that a picture of? Oh, good question. Yeah. So these these are nano cones. Um, so this is this is they're made of silicon. So the same silicon that's used to make microchips. But in this case, uh, we use a special process to basically make these nano cones in the surface. And these cones are ultra small. They're something like 10 nanometers in size. So again, just to give you some sense of perspective, something like a red blood cell, which you think of as being ultra small, would be some giant sort of like stadium-sized object on this scale, right? And we make these nano cones at the surface because it, create, it creates interesting properties at the surface. So you put these nano cones on the surface, it will actually act as a anti-reflection coating. So you could coat it on glass and get rid of the glare that appears on glass to give you one example of why you would put these, uh, these nano cones on the surface. Does that answer your question? Or? Is, is, this, okay. is this the one well, that was? It answered, some, it answered a question, right? Well, what, what is the purpose of those things? Right, so the purpose, well, I mean, there, there's two answers, at least two answers to that. One is that as nanoscientists, we like to make fancy structures just to, under, to learn about how you can control structures, to learn about how you can make more sophisticated things. Um, the other answer that for these particular nano cones is that they're useful for controlling surface properties. So for controlling optical properties or for what we call wettability properties. So if you do it the right way, this surface is what's called superhydrophobic. So water can't stick to it. Water bounces off. And that makes the surface very... Um, convenient because it's sort of self-cleaning because if you have any dust on it, a water droplet will just roll right off and pull all the dust off with it. And water can't stick to it. So if you put on the windshield of your car, you know, the rain won't stick. It'll just you know, slide right off. So that's just to give you one example of what this particular structure would be good for. Is this, is this, was this one inspired by moth eyes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is sort of biomimetic in the sense that um, Living organisms also use similar nanotextures to create the same things, to create this hydrophobic property and this water repelling property uh, to create and this anti-reflection. And super black, right? 
Right, this one in particular is on silicon, and if you see it in real life, it looks jet black. It looks like a hole yeah. on a surface. Like, it's not a shadow, it's not black, it's like light isn't interacting with yeah. it. Because right. we've gotten rid of all of the reflected light, all of the light gets absorbed instead. And it's kind of well. Uh, there's a new art color called Bomb to Black. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking to so that. So that it yeah. completely absorbs light, and your eye doesn't even know how to respond to it. Things like that. But what's fascinating? Imagine the material uses of this, and there's also a huge revolution in materials. If you think about most of the 20th century, we have a poor use of materials. We have a poor use of building codes. So most of our buildings require air conditioning, require all sorts of electricity. They're inefficient. So if we have better materials that are more dealing with some of these issues, we can have buildings that are passive heating, passive cooling, you don't need air conditioning, you, all sorts of stuff. And what's fascinating is how that translates into architecture, industry, design. And that's what I think some of the issues that they are mm -hmm. dealing with with nanotech, it's, and of course, the human body and all sorts of things. It's pretty wild. And it's, it's a challenge of scale, right? It's hard enough to build this, to create this on an incredibly small, like on a wafer. But then if you're gonna scale that up on a windshield or the side of a building, then that creates its own challenges. Okay, so, I mean, I think this is fascinating, but um, so, so Meg, you, Kevin was talking about his work and, and you heard something in that that was interesting to you. Can you guys walk us through, through that moment? And you know each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so full disclosure, Kevin and I are married. Yeah. And that little description that he gave of his job is like, after I heard him talk about his work in a number of times, I was like, Kevin, you're, uh, you are trained in chemistry, you do physics experiments, and you spend most of your day programming computers to make those more efficient. He's like, that is what I do. So that's, so, how, I, that's how I describe myself. That's how he describes himself now. You're welcome. Um, and then I was like, but actually, I don't know what you do. Like, I was a math minor. I understand computer science. I took AP chemistry. I was like, what actually do you, you're like, I deal with two super tiny things. And I'm like, what is this thing? You shoot x-rays at things and then they don't go through it, they bounce off and sometimes they go way off and you invented that and that was cool. But what actually are you doing? And he walks me through the process and he's like, oh, and then the atomic structure, we get a Fourier transform of the density distribution. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he just looks at me, he's like, that's how you all would respond to a Fourier transform, right? You'd be like, yep, I'm with yeah, you. That I'm sounds with great. You. And he's like, why do you know about the Fourier transform? I was like, well, it's the basis of a lot of audio synthesis. Um, I deal with it all the time in my job. And he's like, huh? I said, well, you can actually distance um, frequency and time. You can separate them instead of having them entangled. You can separate them using Fourier transforms. And he denies this, but he sat there for 20 seconds it happened. <laughs> He's like, I accept that. I was like, well, that's good. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, since you deal with Fourier and I deal with Fourier and there's this thing called sonification, we could very easily turn your data into sound. And uh, we wrote a grant. He very graciously, like, I think humored me for, for a long time in this, in this process. Uh, he was like, sure, we can turn my data into sound. So that's what we've done. Uh, we have an atomic structure, and we've now turned it into sound, which is really, really cool. And it's, it's had some legs. And then, uh, then we brought Melissa in and added visual, more visualizations. And, and that's our story. So, so what? <laughs> So what about this makes you want to turn it into sound? Like why, where does that impulse come from? So just the fact I had some colleagues that had done really cool stuff with sonification. They discovered an ocean current. Our ears are really good at detecting pattern. If there's a regular pattern and you sonify something in the right way, you'll hear it as pitch. So 
it, oh, I can't whistle, la, there you go, is in fact the air is moving in a regular pattern and our brain is decoding that as a pitch. And so my friend Bob had done this sonification of ocean waves and there was this really low pitch and all the scientists were like, you did the sonification wrong. And he's like, okay, I'll do it a different way. And then there was a really low pitch. Then they're like, that, you know, no, you're doing it wrong. And he did it another way, and there was a higher pitch. He's like, that's because I made it a higher pitch. And they finally looked at the data, and they found this really low-level current in the Pacific Ocean that wasn't apparent from the data. I had heard about sonifications of black holes. They discovered something about that. I was like, maybe we could discover something about nanomaterials if we make sound out of it. We haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure. Full disclosure. <laughs> However, I, you know, I think Kevin was playing along with me. Okay, sure, we'll do this. We got a grant. Like I said, that was exciting. It was the most money the music department had ever seen. And like, basically, Kevin could put that on a credit card, and no one would blink. But the music department was like, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but there came a moment when we sonified. Uh, so actually, let's, maybe we can play a couple of these samples so you get yeah. a feeling for what they sound like. This is a metallic alloy. Uh, those of you that have The atoms are very tightly packed and it results in a higher pitch. Uh, another one is and my- So just to interject, the, the, the data comes from something we call X-ray scattering. So we shoot an X-ray beam at, at the sample and it, it scatters off and we measure the angle at which they, they scatter. And that, that basically is measuring the position of the atom. So this is another answer to your question about how do you see at this scale? Using X-rays is another way to do it. And it's reassembly. All of those scattered bits of X-rays. All of those scattered rays are being detected and then from that you can reconstruct where the atoms were. But in this case, we're turning it into sound instead of trying to turn it into an image. So this is one of my favorites. It's a nanotubes in polymer. So polymer is chaotic. And in sound, chaos is like noise. So you'll hear noise. And then there's pitches in it. So you can actually hear the nanotubes. Um, and Kevin thought that I was lying to him. But I've trained him now to understand this. The thing that he got the very, very excited about was when you can imagine that you're shooting x-rays at this thing that's like 125,000th the width of a human hair. It bounces off, and you have to catch it in a camera detector, right? So things go wrong a lot. And there's like 12 pieces of equipment that ha like happen in between things like vacuums and lasers, and it's very exciting. And you should go to Brookhaven, you can get a tour. I was not paid to say that. Anyway, he heard one of the things that was a glitched sample. So we can play that one. Missile So. In my head, the scientists are all walking around and they're like, they have beakers and they're like pouring them into each other and they're looking very intently at them and then there's like these things getting measured and you can't look to see that things have been measured but you could hear it. So we're in the process of installing this so that scientists can actually hear when their data has been measured and hear if it's misaligned. Yeah. So, so to ask a, <laughs> a very forward, maybe offensive question, Kevin, is this useful to you in your work? <laughs> Well, uh, she already gave the disclosure that we yeah, haven't discovered right? anything new through sonification uh, alone yet. But I think she's already given the answer, which is that, and this is the one I was, even though it's, this is the sonification of the like error condition, this is the one that got me the most excited because it sort of shows, it, it, you can just listen, you listened to three clips just now, and you may not have picked up on all the tiny details, but you could very easily tell that they were all very different. And so the point is that we as scientists are overwhelmed with data and so we need ways to interact with it more efficiently. And so the example that Meg just gave is you're a scientist, you're 
working, collecting this data, you don't have to be watching it like a hawk. You can kind of listen to it in the background and you can immediately tell, without even really paying attention, you can tell when something goes wrong or when something unexpected happens. So this gives us a new way to kind of interact with data in a more ambient way. And so it's something we're trying, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna implement it on our instruments so that we can basically be working on something else and listening to the data collection in the background. It's a little alarm. If it's like screeching and piercing, it's, it's yeah. going great. Then we're <laughs> all good. I love, yeah, but, uh, I love this screeching sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, so this, this work was happening and then you invited Melissa to, to, to join the party. Right. Right, so if um, we could show the acoustic imaging slide of the Hudson, the art piece. Uh, the first data piece I did was using jumping on the sound visual thing. It was bathymetry data, data, which is using active sonar that goes down through the water, bounces off the bottom of the riverbed or the ocean bed, and is cross-correlated and draws these maps. And the scientist that I worked with at that time from Columbia was a geologist uh, studying how ice had carved, in this particular case, the Hudson. But then if we can show the Antarctica glass installation. The second piece I did was using the same bathymetric data, which is sound drawing, this landscape, which they're used, uh, used to study how the glaciers have been carving, in this particular case, around West Antarctica, which there was this very large dip. Can you show the max patch? This is uh, the data that I've worked with before, which was numerical, in, in essence, unlike the data, which I'll get to, that I worked with uh, with BNL. But this is the piece that Meg became familiar with when she was curating a show at Stony Brook at the Simon Center for Geometry and Physics, and that is how I met Meg. Yeah, um, so I called up a friend of mine. The Simon Center, I don't know how many people have been there, but it's very it's a gallery with a big space in the middle, and I was like, I need a sculpture. I need somebody that's doing sculpture with data. Glass and my friend, I called my friend Luke Dubois, who does a lot of work with data, who DJ Spooky knows very well. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, remember when Luke introduced us? And, and I was like, and you, you, you did an album with him, and you're his producer. Oh, you're talking about Yeah. 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 Um, right, so That sonification circle, so it's Meg real was small. Looking, Meg was looking for a sculpture, for a database sculpture, to fill out this particular show. He had recommended that she see my work. It was immediate that yes. Um, and then Meg and I became friends. I taught at Stony Brook for quite a while. And then Kevin became familiar with my work because of our friendship. And I showed this work, among others, a whole sort of narrative about my work with data at the 10th uh, CFN retreat. Something like that. Yeah, they had, a, they had a retreat. And Kevin said, Melissa, I think it would be very inspiring for the scientists who had their own data visualization art contest at this retreat, which was so much fun. Um, I got a coffee mug with their artwork on it. He said it might be inspiring to see what an artist, you know, whose work and practice it is, is to work with data, you know? So I did that. And then shortly after, this whole thing kind of happened where it was like, let's make this, let's make not just sound, but sculpture, VR piece, and, and visual prints, too. Yeah, so we wrote a work. grant to we have did. a permanent artist in residence at BNL. So just like Paul is the artist in residence at Google right now, we were trying to set up a program. Again, that didn't get funded. But the project that we had said would be really cool as a first iteration so was this virtual reality one. The glass menagerie concept sketch? Yeah. Perfect. 
Okay, so this was the first sketch that I did for the VR piece and kind of similar for the sculpture that you see over there. It was kind of the jumping board. As I said, luckily in my other job as a designer, I get to des uh, model and design in 3D too. So I'm, I really am grateful that I get to work in this world a lot. And so this was the sketch that we used to basically pitch the piece. And then I guess we could just show an installation or another iteration. So I'd just like to point so, out in this image, uh, oh, I can point with my finger. There's a human. So that's showing the scale. And the idea of the project was to understand nanostructure, the, the um, structures of scale. So you as a human, it's really hard to imagine a tiny, tiny nanoparticle. But when you can hold it in your hand, you get a feel for how big it is, and then you go into nano, into VR, and suddenly those nanoparticles are the size of buildings. And that sort of gives you the understanding of the level of scale that we're dealing with. Right, and so we were talking about this before you all came, about Chuck, who is the director, director of CFN. Of CFN. He got inside of the VR piece, and he got inside of his data set, and he was just floored. He was absolutely like, so you, well, you would ask like, and I, you know, not, art doesn't have to have an application, obviously, right? It, it, but it can. And in this case, it's like, what is the application of the piece? Well, for one, it's to have the scientists be able to interact with their data in this fun way and for outreach. But then we're working on a second piece, which is an algorithmic piece where the scientists will be able to dump in data sets and see patterns and actually explore them. So I was saying, like, you're saying, how do they see the data? And right now, even though it's three-dimensional, it lives in three and four-dimensional space. They're really seeing it, we're seeing it in two-dimensional like drawings and renderings. We're bringing it to a real three-dimensional, four-dimensional space again. So this is really kind of fascinating and interesting. And the fact that they will be able to, down the line, take their own data sets and dump them into the VR and be able to explore them and, and see these patterns all around them is, I think, really exciting. Yeah, so that question of how do we see things that are at this scale, like this is one of the answers to that, right? And this, I don't know, it's just, a, it's baffling to me that the process was here's some actual, for example, x-ray scat scattering data on a nanomaterial that like, self-assembled, that sort of put itself together under the right conditions, that you then have data, and you have some imagery that you're able to assemble and create from that. Then there's a sonification step where you turn that into sound, and then, you add in this extra layer of re-visualizing with some awareness of the original visual, but also just the sound creation, and then you have these larger... I like, guess just show some more renders, right? Yeah, and these are, these are 3D printed, the ones that are here. And so you see things like the scattering data laid out. And it's a total, I mean, I don't know, have you ever seen data presented this way? Well, Nano? I mean, now, now it's routine for me, but... Uh, <laughs> but yes, no. Can you was, show the lattice piece? I think that one's pretty. The lattice and the nanostar. The two, the renders. The, the virtual so reality renders. Was there a moment during this for any of you where you saw, where I mean, or you heard, or you saw something and it was, yeah. Kevin, you talked about the, uh, the misaligned beam, that that yeah, was yeah. kind of meaningful. Well, I think this, but is a, this is a good example where we had been looking, or at least I had been looking at the images of this for a long time on you know, computer screens and whatnot. But when it was 3D printed, and even more when I got into VR, it's a bit hard to see, but there's essentially these hollow tubes down the center of those struts. And it was really hard to see on screen until I sort of got in VR, and I saw these details that were hard to yeah, see otherwise. That's so, so this structure, by the way, is an ultra-small structure made out of um, DNA, actually. I'm gonna so, pass this around. Yeah, at the, at the Nano Center, we can actually program DNA so that it folds into complicated shapes, and we can actually get it to fold into this interesting 
intricate octahedral shape and even more complicated shape. So this is just another way that we make nanomaterials. What about um, the piece that has your heart, the first? The, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, can you, you call up the first x-ray scattering uh, landscape? I see you, Chris, that one's with also your hand up, yeah. and we'll get to you. Yeah. This I is, missed it. This is also one of my favorites in terms of renders. I have to tell you that in this, with this particular series, a lot of the physicality has already been predetermined by the scientists, but I still get a lot of creative freedom in terms of reinterpreting it, you know, however I light it, materials, so on and so forth. But Kevin, also, this piece really resonates with you. Yeah, I mean, I like the way this one looks, but it, this is, has sort of an emotional component <laughs> for me because this is literally the first real data set that we collected on this, this instrument that I helped to build at Brookhaven. It's called CMS. It's this beamline that we spent, like, roughly eight years from conception to finally turning it on. Uh, and this was essentially the first data we collected on it. So to me, this is like the culmination of many, many years beautiful of work. Beautiful mountain range. And, yeah, and it turned into a beautiful mountain range, basically. Uh, so, so there Paul, was this a is. Question. Oh yeah. Oh yes, question. Of course, please. Um, just quickly, you said you render things in four dimensions. Is that three dimensions changing over time? The timing, the four. Right. The, the not four spatial dimensions. <laughs> right. The, the addition of time. time. <laughs> right. The addition of time, and and okay. that's not the rendering. That would be the VR piece. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which we'll we'll take a, a little look at later. Oh, the the models that are being passed around. They're made out of resin. It's called glass menagerie, but they're made out of resin. And three D printed, right? Yeah, they're three D printed with uh, two kinds of resin, and then you um, basically put submerge it in a basic solution, and it uh, dissolves the structuring. Yeah. So the and then support then structure. It. Yeah. Um, and then they polish it. Yeah. So is that as big as it could become, or could you? Make it as big as we want. Yeah, but I mean, when, right. uh, 3D printing though, I yeah. it wouldn't be a 3D printer. Yeah, we could we could certainly design it some other way. Uh huh. It would be very interesting to make it super huge. Sure. So yes, we're accepting in VR commissions in VR. Yeah, it's that's huge. right. It's fun. Well, um, do you have any examples of where we can be? Right. So I think it's still early days, so I don't have too many examples, but I can I can give you two. So one is again the piece that was shown just a second ago, and that's being ha handed around this octahedral shape. There's all kinds of fine details in there that that one can that, that were really difficult to see until I got into it in VR, and I could sort of see these. Uh, uh, yeah, these like uh, channels. channels down the center of these like tubes that, in principle, I knew were there, but until you really see them and viscerally understand where they are and how big they are, it, it wasn't obvious. And another that Melissa did it did it change the way you might approach synthesizing the materials or describing them? It, it changes the way you. I mean, whenever you're do, dealing with the science of the ultra small, you always have to have some kind of mental model sure. of what of how they're going and you try and predict how they're going to interact and all that. And so, the more deeply you can understand how they look like and how they interact. The more you know, the more scientific you can be, the more predictive you can be. Yeah, it's so, kind of lovely that there's that intuitive side of it, right? The visualization right. I mean, we're, beyond we're, yeah, the data. Right. So we're trying to the, we're trying to develop this intuition and encode it into formal equations and, and all scientific rigor. But the more, as a scientist, the more intuition you have, the better. So the more you can get this kind of visceral understanding for like, oh yeah, this object is that big and it has a channel down the center. So I guess that means water molecules are going to go down that channel. Maybe I can use that for something. Like that's that's where sort of new ideas come from. So that was a partial answer, or I don't know. That was know. pretty good, yeah. All right, so Paul, you, so this is one approach to, to sonification and visualization, right? Taking the data and working very closely with 
the scientist who's generating that source data. What, uh, one, how does that, what's your, what are your thoughts on that process and the outcome? And then what other approaches have you had to taking data, to taking, let's say, science that's difficult to access and understand and turning it into something else entirely? Sure, can we switch the iPad? And actually, I have a question for everybody. Can I get a glass of red wine? <laughs> it's his birthday, it's his birthday. okay? Yeah, red, I want a large uh, red, red wine, there we go. So yeah, basically, here, let me just show you guys really quick. I've written several books. One of the projects that I ended up doing, usually I published with MIT, was called Of Water and Ice. And so I took a studio, as I mentioned earlier, down to Antarctica and went to several of the main ice fields and was doing like what I call earlier uh, acoustic portraits of ice. So we made this as an open source album. And basically, I worked with a couple different singers to sing the geometry of ice. And I'll just show you what that kind of looks like. The issue for me is that we have to be very careful. So for example, this is a data set from sort of when we were there of the temperature differential variables. What Isn't it beautiful? Doing... Isn't it just <laughs> brilliant? So what I ended up doing is doing, taking that and applying it to kind of being able to do, a, again, a sonification. But at the end of the day, it didn't sound cool. And the problem with this stuff is you have to be very careful, uh, at least in my field of DJ culture and sort of at the edge of pop culture, is accessibility. So the term was, it's basically what I ended up doing was taking those weather points. Hey, thank you. Wow. All right. Um, and cheers to you. Thanks. So taking the weather patterns and then being able to do an algorithmic music transcription of that actually allowed me to get a bit of an overview of the patterns of the weather in Antarctica and the temperature differentials. But on the other end, what I wanted to do is, with DJ culture, it's about collage. So what I ended up doing was going back in time a little bit and tracking down this gentleman. This is Johannes Kepler. So Kepler, in 1611, was on his way home, and he was walking through a snowstorm. And again, snowstorms are kind of, again, if you're walking in a storm, you're essentially in a chaotic system. So a, a snowflake landed on his sleeve, and he ended up writing this essay called Six Sides of a Snowflake, which is generally considered to be the first essay about geometry and nature. And if you think about what a snowflake is, Essentially, what you're seeing is a hexagonal form and permutation. So what's going on here is that in nature, you have this stunningly beautiful precision of, of mathematics. Uh, and being able to do that and have the equation of it allowed me to pull it into some software. And, but let's just see some variations here. And if you see, you're seeing the same thing mathematically in geometric form. And once you start getting into that, you realize we're looking at this sort of what some artist uh, like Amiri Baraka, for example, would call the changing same but it's a mathematical relationship, and some people can look at this in fractal dimensions, some people could look at it in other kinds of geometric form. I can imagine but, that, like 3D printed and fitting right in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Right, like, yeah, but this, it looks but right this at is home. nature, and you're just walking in a snowstorm. So that is like plastic and artificial, and you had to print it some in some lab. So the beautiful, beautiful thing around this is in hip hop, there's what we call poetic lyricism, and this is a gentleman by the name of Iceberg Slim. So he would use ice in all his books, and uh, he wrote a series of books that inspired a lot of hip-hop MCs. So he would take these photographs of himself sitting on huge piles of ice. So he inspired Ice Cube, Ice Tea. If you got the white guy, you got Vanilla Ice. You know? <laughs> and so what ended up happening was he became wildly popular and an inspiration for a lot of the early hip-hop MCs. But you've got the, you know, the poetic and you've got the scientific. So being able to go back and forth between those two was a kind of chart that I have to navigate. But it's also important to not have something that sounds like an you know, Excel spreadsheet. And to me, at least, it's really important to have that lyrical sensibility. So for example, if the data didn't kind of quite work in terms of a 4-4 tempo, for example, let me show you what this would ended up being. And uh, we've had almost a million plus downloads. Antarctica is the only place on Earth with no government. So I developed a software called DJ Spooky, 
what you're seeing here really quick is I'm going to pull up the project unit of water and ice. And what I had a woman do was sing the geometry of the ice, and then I started sampling it. So what you're going to hear, this is her voice, actually. So we'll just go. So what I'm doing is doing what you saw that sound wave. We've already broken it up into a 4-4 tempo. You can see those yellow lines. It's what you call it, sort of a, a, a beat map. Um, and being able to take that. And I'm going to kind of layer it against itself. It's still the same, quote unquote, same thing, like the ice cube you were seeing earlier, ice flake. So this is. And I'll add a beat. And you're pulling elements and out. And that's by itself. It's pretty addictive. Um, so what you were hearing, thanks, cheers, was um, a 4-4 tempo data map, but still it's funky and you can dance to it. So, that, so that's like a critical thing for me. Did that, you know, did, you know. so did working with this, and you know, you have like a different end goal in, in, in some sense, right? That you want it to be funky and for people to dance to it. Did it change your relationship, the way you think about ice, the way you think about geometry, did it deepen that in any way? Yeah, I mean, it, just to show you again, what ended up happening was fascinating. I got a whole bunch of phone calls from people, and one of the first iterations of that was hosted by, amusing enough, Robert Redford. And well, he, he's a big environmental activist, and so he called up and said, hey, I want to present that at Sundance. So we, we walked in a room, and we set it up where you would have different loops of different kinds of ice. So the ice is melting and because of Antarctica and other issues with climate change. And you would walk through the room and you would hear different tempos of the melting. So you were able to make beats out of that. And that got very popular. And I also wrote a book about it uh, with Brian Greene, who's a very renowned uh, physicist. And he, it was called The Book of Ice. And it's a free download because Antarctica is the only place on Earth with no government. So no taxes and it's free. <laughs> and basic vibe is these are projects that I think are really important uh, Brian Greene's book, uh, The Elegant Universe, is a, it's a pretty important, I think at least, groundbreaking book for accessibility. And so thinking about how books, literature, music, and the arts work, going back to Johannes Kepler, him and Galileo changed our perspective, and both of whom were considered uh, controversial at the time. They were almost burned at the stake. And without them, you know, Galileo hadn't said, hey, the Earth rotates around the sun, and it's science, deal with it, Pope. You know. His words. Right. <laughs> You know, that would have been, uh, the, uh, the course of our history would have been very different. So these are all issues that really, you know, going from this to what you were just hearing, how I think contemporary art really needs to think about how science can inform the creative process, but not necessarily overwhelm it. And then that makes it for a more robust conversation. Like that's why I began with showing Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore from India. But these are, these are strange times. I mean, science and literacy and different kinds of engagement with, um, Facts, you know, I mean, my motto these days is reality has a liberal bias, you know? And the idea here is that if you're in a world. Somebody owes us $25. Right. <laughs> oh, you know. yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. On your last point, the coincidence may be accidental, 
but the sounds you just played reminded me very much of Inuit throat singing. Huh. I had not thought of that in Tribeca. I don't know if everybody heard that. <laughs> the sounds reminded him of Inuit throat singing. If you listen to it, you'll hear the similarities. And I, don't, I don't know if that informed anything you were working with. Uh, I've been both to the North Pole and South Pole, so it's a little bipolarity <laughs> going there. But um, we, we, I work with National Geographic, and I actually have met Inuit throat singers. I hadn't thought about that one, but I, I, it's, it's material to sample. Something about instruments made of ice. Yeah, there's a comp couple composers who do that. One of my favorites, actually, considering you asking this question, uh, this is your living room. And I'm dead serious, actually, by the way. <laughs> there's a very renowned composer named Yanis Zanakis, who's generally a titan of 20th century math and music. And me and him did a collaboration conducted by Charles Bornstein, who's a very interesting conductor. And so, you know, Zanakis was in the resistance during World War II. And there's a very famous story where the Nazis had occupied Athens, and there was a lot of gun battles from street to street, and he was in the resistance, and he was in a firefight with a group of Nazis, and one of them threw a grenade over a wall, and the grenade exploded and tore his face. So his face kind of looked like this geometric form, like a Picasso painting or something. You don't want to look like a Picasso painting, trust me. But what ended up happening is he had to flee because the US then backed the Greek junta that came after World War II and ended up as an intern at Le Corbusier Studio in Paris. And uh, he high, became highly influential in contemporary minimalist architecture, mathematics. So his style of architecture is called volumetric architecture. So you take these sort of points, lines, and structures. And uh, he became wildly famous. Me and him did a collaboration. You were at the concert, if I remember correctly. So he's generally considered one of the premier composers of the 21st century. Yanis Xenakis. Uh, he used um, ancient Greek mathematics, like Pythagoras' theories, Heraclitus, Archimedes. And then, but those are the ancient school, and now in hip hop we call it old school, you know. Um, He's also one of the first, yeah. he did the first uh, graphical representations of sound. Mm -hmm. He did the software, I forget the, um, I, yeah, I did a whole series. We have some stuff in common, I did oh, a whole okay. series yeah, on yeah. Zanakis. We stayed in touch and we did a yeah. couple albums together, so. Oh, right. Well, we, we're, you guys are hearing a first conspiracy, uh, which is we're going to probably reissue the albums we did together because we have several mutual friends in common, and we're going to reissue these projects. Um, Zanakis' work is, I think at least, one of the most important composers of the 21st century because he used algorithms to rethink how we look at uh, a symphony. So I want to pivot back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, something that Paul just went very quickly, and it maybe didn't resonate with everybody, is he was like, I took the data and it didn't sound good, right? And so I, I looped it and made it into this thing that then sounded good. I think that's so interesting to me because I think a lot of times people think, we'll just plug in the data and it'll sound cool. It doesn't. <laughs> you have to work at it to make it sound cool. And I'm actually doing a project, 2019 is the 400th anniversary of Kepler publishing Harmonies of the World, where he laid out the three laws of planetary motion because he believed in God and an ordered universe, and he also knew music theory. And 10 years before that, they finally said that open th thirds and sixths were okay. And because the church had decided that thirds and sixths were okay, he figured out that at certain points, the planets would be in that harmony and that it would be fine. So without music theory, we wouldn't know that uh, planetary orbits were elliptical. Right, no, it's a wild, like, let's unpack that, because they actually call it the devil's tone. You know, there was a certain sort of tritone kind of, 
You want to play it? Yeah. And you you could be burned yeah, at the stake if you played this back in the day, by the way. Oh. But I love I love that there's this this push and pull, right? That there's this idea that science is rigid, it's fixed, and you're just going to follow the data, right? Follow the results. Well, and that she, while she's getting ready, I just want to say one yeah. thing too about scale. So with bathymetric uh, data, I also did sonification of that. I do as well. And the chirp sample that was given to me was like on a nanosecond scale. And I had to stretch that out, you know, to make an entire oh, composition. Yeah. And you know how you change different frequencies and you loop it in different ways. Ended up making a 20 minute audio video piece out of it. Um, and so that's something else like in terms Which of Which is really compelling, it's easy to find. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Meg. Yeah, yeah. so everybody sort of knows like the monks. They only had thirds, uh, fourths and fifths, and octaves. Right? Then uh, this guy, Orlando DeLassis, was like, you can add in thirds and sixths. So. Right? And Kepler spent a lot of time, you can read in his journals, he decided that. He was like, that, that, sounds, that, that sounds all right. But there is this note that you could literally get burned at the stake. Um, which is the tritone. So it's a diminished fifth or an augmented fourth. And so that's, that's the very, very bad note. It's called um, literally the devil's tone. Yeah, yeah. And so, I couldn't make this up. Yeah, so when you're doing sonification, um, if you have a lot of that kind of, you're like, oh gosh, I don't want that. And then you're like, okay, I'll make it into just, right, octaves. But then you lose the integrity of the data if you simplify it too much. Mm -hmm. So it's always know, this push and pull between the data and the aesthetics. But Meg, what's so fun about what you were just saying, like, I'm sure many of you all heard that sort of slight dissonance. That's like half of hip hop and the other half is techno. There you go. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, that's the sound of global digital youth culture at this point. So uh, Kevin. There's a, there's a question there. I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you, you've sort of almost answered it, which is, do you think that's why Western music, traditional Western music, sounds the way it does? Because we've been enculturated to approve of certain sounds and disapprove. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Our tuning systems are really wild. In fact, the Nazis, you know, there was a whole thing of like, you know, 440 hertz versus 432. Anyone during World War II, the Germans were so deeply into Wagner that Hitler had the entire German you know, culture switched to the certain tuning system, which we now use, amusingly enough, uh, for tr it's called true tuning. Like if you have a fork, you know, you hit it, it's boom. But uh, many people feel that there's a different kind of slightly off of that 432. Do you know about this, this yep. whole controversy? But most, most civilians, I'll call it, you know, wouldn't be able to tell the 440 versus 432. But it was a big deal and again, wildly controversial if you played Wagner in 432. Again, you could be burned at the stake. Well, in Germany, you wouldn't be burned at the stake. There are other things happened. Yeah, it was highly controversial. Yeah? So, so you know about the well-tempered clavier mm -hmm. and the untempered clavier. Mm -hmm. So it's the well-tempered clavier and the untempered. Hip-hop's the bad-tempered clavier. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I heard classical music played on the untempered clavier, mm -hmm. where all the intervals are not quite, they're, they're what they should be, yep. but they have right. been tempered to our uh, half-step yeah, so even if I, if I tune my cello um, just by myself, I will tune it perfectly, and it'll be this perfect ratio of two against three for an open fifth. But if I have to play with a piano, I have to tune my C string up a little bit because the piano 
has been sort of tuned to work in multiple keys instead of in a single key. So there's, there's a science behind even the music that we are listening to. You know, that inspires me to show one quick thing. Like, uh, speaking of the, what you, the thing you just mentioned, so say, for example, this is a harp. In fact, given it's 2019, it's a harp app. <laughs> all right, so this is all in those normal tone ranges. So if you go. So amusing enough, if you hear most Eastern instruments, this is a, again a, a Chinese uh, bujang. Don't allow, of course. So most Eastern cultures go for what you call microtonal progression. So if you look at, if you hear Indian or Chinese, they had different tuning systems, but they were actually much more mathematically advanced than the West. And the West didn't get the concept of zero because a lot of these instruments were based on um, tuning systems that had zero. If you, the West didn't get zero until uh, Fibonacci. And so, amusingly enough, the Liber Abaci, which is a very famous book, was the first to bring Arabic numerals to the West because they used Roman numerals, which didn't have zero. The Romans and Greeks didn't have zero. And again, controversial, but when Einstein met Rabindranath Tagore, Einstein, and him, Einstein actually played violin. You know, so Kepler is a kind of a nice resonant point there. But Einstein, when he would, would get into what you call sort of writer's block, when he's working on the general theory of relativity, he would go and play violin for a while. And he had an ensemble of other quantum physics and physics people, and they would go and jam. And so then he'd finish the equations and so on. It's kind of a wild scenario, because when he met Rabindranath Tagore, they were talking about uh, why the West didn't have certain tuning systems, because Einstein was really fascinated with Indian music. And so Rabindranath Tagore, it's very apocryphal, so someone can, I'm sure you guys are all geeks, someone will come up with the exact quote. But he was like, well, the Western, you guys didn't have zero. That's why, you know, um, you, know you guys have those whole tones. In India, we have like tones between the tones, between the tones. So, and this is a Chinese app, Guzheng app. So if you were to hear her play like a normal sort of Western whole tone structure, the, the, if you were in ancient China, or in India, they would find that annoying and boring and like, they're like, come on, get some flavor in there. So some, you know, anyway, yeah, just kind of fun little factoid there. So, so, so to flip this idea of, of exploring and the, the aesthetic drive, Kevin, you, t you, you talked uh, briefly earlier about that you're not always just chasing the data, you're not chasing the most optimal, like highest performing material. Sometimes you're opening that up to the idea of just complexity and pushing it. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you get out of just exploring in that way. Right, so I guess sometimes the, sci yes. I mean, the, the stereotype perhaps of scientists is that we're always just purely in pursuit of some very concrete goal. But in science, we sort of differentiate between, let's call it application-driven research, where you're trying to make a stronger uh, you know, aircraft wing, or you're trying to come up with a better battery. But then there's also what we sometimes call curiosity-driven research, where we're, someone, some might say fumbling around, but we would prefer to say, trying to do complicated things for the sake of doing them. Yeah, it's or an that, incredibly exactly. sophisticated fumbling. Exactly. No, but what I, what, what I mean more seriously is that we're, we're challenging ourselves to increase the sophistication of, let's say, the structure that we can make or the measurement that we can make, because we know that by doing that, there's going to be these, this, this knowledge that we gain from it and these like spin-off applications, this spin-off information. So I guess, yeah, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that scientists do have this kind of aesthetic where we're trying to play around and challenge ourselves to just do. No, is but the, the, nano, the nano star. The, yeah. Can we pull up the I mean, I think, I think there's an element of that in almost everything. So like this DNA octahedron, 
there are applications for it. You can use this to create better catalysts that will you know, uh, convert materials more rapidly and efficiently. But there's also an aspect of it that we as scientists are looking to challenge ourselves into making the most sophisticated structures to you know, exert the most control at this scale because we know we're going to learn about the universe and ultimately that's what we're trying to do as scientists. We're trying to learn more and more about how materials behave. So the one thing all the way on the, I'm dyslexic so as, I, as right. you all know, on the right, there you go. So I, we try to learn about the materials because often uh, Melissa and I will be out talking to the public and we won't have Kevin here to explain stuff. So we want to learn about them. What are they useful for? What is this, what is this doing? And it was really funny because your boss was like, I recognize all of these, but I don't recognize that one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's the nanostar. He's like, well, what, this, what is that? I was like, they just wanted to make a thing with as many protuberances as possible. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And there it is. And you, yeah, we can pass that one around too. And it definitely has protuberances. That's what we're all looking for, those <laughs> protuberances. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the, what that VR experience looks oh, like. Oh, there's someone with their hand. Were you? Oh, yes, oh, and then, yeah. then I'm going to come back for some closing questions. Oh, are I'll we not doing secret data? Alas, oh my god, secret data. Okay, first VR video so you can see and imagine actually experiencing this visualization, this sonic and visual experience. Okay, so... Uh, yes, we're going to do one question, then we're going to do secret science, and then we got to wrap. <laughs> secret science. Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's a visualization, so a representation. But yes, all of these objects you're seeing here, they, they are objects that we made in real life, but at in these incredibly ultra small size scales. Right, right. I mean, you've got a nano, a nano, a nano, right? A nano, a nano, a it's the world that Kevin built for you, yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I... Yeah, Kevin built the real thing, and then, yeah. of course, Melissa... Yeah, if you were shrunk down to the, the nano steel, one. these are the kinds of things that you would see. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A lot of those weird structures, yeah. So we, so yeah, we have, we've, because we got to turn this into a dance party soon. We're a little time crunched. Hmm? Yes, the nano moves. So um, very, very quickly, we're going to do uh, an exercise where we're going to take a look at some, this is going to be, wow, how fast can we get those neurons firing? So Kevin's going to show us some data that none of them have seen from CFN, and we're going to get some like quick takes on how these three multidisciplinary artists might interpret that and turn it into something else. Cool? Cool. Okay. So yeah, you want to switch to the first? All right. So, <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah, so this is data they've never seen before. I'll describe it super quickly. They can ask maybe one or two questions, and then they would talk about how they would interpret it. So these are actually quantum materials. These are, these are what we call flakes of two-dimensional materials sitting on a, on a surface. So these, these different colored uh, shapes you see, these are flakes of, in this case, graphene or graphite. Uh, some of you may have already heard of this material. And if you switch to the next slide, so you have a substrate with all these thousands and thousands of flakes. This is what they look like. And then we can use machine learning to identify them and categorize them. And you're seeing some of the output of the internals of the machine learning model and how it clusters them into different groups and blah, blah, blah. And so you have all these kinds of, this is one kind of flake and this is a different kind of flake. And then if you switch to the next slide yet, and then this is even deeper into the machine learning model where now the data is getting even more abstract. We're far away beautiful. from a 
photograph or an image of the sample and we're getting into this representation of how all the individual flakes, how similar they are to each other and how they kind of naturally form these clusters. So that's super quickly a description of a new data set you've never seen before. So what would you do with it? Well, I'm going to write an opera. <laughs> uh -huh. I would do a computer vision thing. I will say full disclosure, I've done it before. That would recognize those surfaces, use that machine learning to uh, basically composite them over time and then show the transition between them. So what would, what would that look like, the final whatever you would produce? So basically, they, they would become a composite of all of them, but that composite would extend over time. So you'd see one one extreme change to the other over a period of time visually. I maybe hear that too. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, like a, yeah. but would it be like a 3D visualization, anything uh, similar to what we've seen? I think. Okay. Because graphene is 2D. That's true. That's true. I know that yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking like fashion because they're actually fascinating. There's a whole bunch of new uses for graphene that um, your clothing can actually become all sorts of stuff. In fact, if you look at what's going on in Hong Kong, which is, again, really fascinating, the democracy movement, what they're doing is they're learning the uh, mass surveillance kind of techniques of the government, and they're making makeup, or they're doing stuff with their clothing that confuses the cameras. So if you try and like, do a surveillance on someone, it usually has these small squares. It does a biometric reading of your face. But if you put certain kind of reflective surfaces on your face, it can also be invisible. The cameras can't recognize you. And so what they've been doing is beaming lasers at the cameras of the, of the Chinese police and all sorts of really wild innovation. But the clothing potentials of this stuff is pretty wild. And especially considering like cotton, for example, is highly inefficient and it gets wet very easily and it's soggy or wool. It's graphene because it's hydrophobic and has other issues. You can actually have a huge revolution in materials for clothing. And most of us throw away 10 to 50 pounds of clothes a year. But imagine if we shredded those and then repurposed them with some of this stuff and made clothing that was both durable, fooled cameras, and, um, you know, and was cool. Why not? So for me, um, doing sonification is a way that like, I can do science. Like, I love science and math, but my brain, I just couldn't imagine not being a musician thing that passionate about. So this lets me sort of get into what scientists are doing and find out what's important to them. So when you're gro grouping them, is it simply based on shape? shape? Actually, it's based on shape, but mostly based on the color, essentially. The, okay, what's, the, how do you get color from graphene? Uh, well, the, the image we showed a few slides before, yeah, those yeah. bright colors, that's yep. in an optical microscope, we're essentially just taking an image. So what, cha what makes the colors? The different thicknesses. Different so thicknesses, graphene, okay. The true graphene, which is two-dimensional and just an atom thick, yep. is very, very light blue <laughs> in this representation, and then the thicker ones are these brighter uh, ones. And are both equally desirable? No, we only want the graphene. You only the want the ultra-thin. And what's this black stuff? That's junk. That's <laughs> junk. That's, that's okay. blue. That's blue. That now that's compelling. The sample. All right. But it's so also like this is ultralight material that's, that's extreme, right. extremely is strong. It's as thin as it can get. Yeah. 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 And it's, so, you can fire bullets at it. You can do all sorts of stuff. People are doing crazy stuff with graphene. Are you ideally searching? Like, we're trying to. Find it's hard to get large pieces of the light blue. Correct. And that, is that the that's, that's what the, you want? That's essentially the objective: is to find the biggest, nicest, big. Than hard to find flakes. Yeah. Hard to find because they're very, uh, very faintly colored in these images. Yeah. Okay, so I could imagine you want to, you know, scan over this in a way and then be like, oh, there it is. And then you like find it and then you can like pick it up and do stuff with yeah. it? Yeah. So you need like XY coordinates of the good stuff. Correct. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so somehow. Wait, have y'all done this before? No. It looks like it. Yeah. No, I just mean you two <laughs> collaborating. Oh, that it's very. I've never seen this data before. <laughs> this is what I do. Uh, so yeah, you want to have something that when you get a big piece of light blue, it makes a good sound. So somehow I would figure out how you already have the machine learning that does the like, oh, we know it's big right. and light blue. So we would just need to figure out a way maybe to represent the position of that sonically. And then you could, uh, like Melissa was going to do, like time scale it. You could actually play several things. And then it would be kind of fun if you could, you could actually hear. And then you'd be like, oh, in all those samples, it's over there. And you could grab it and do stuff with it and help Hong Kong. Boom. Okay, so uh, on that note, we do have to wrap up. If if you all have questions, just we're hanging out for a while. Wait, so should we do closing, quick closing statements? I, I, is that, is that, that's a, is that okay? Statement. What? Time, time, yeah. is, time is elastic. We're here. And, uh, there, well, you know, it's yeah. your show. The time that's coming up. I so, think, uh, uh, only one, I think a closing uh, statement from the birthday boy. I would love, okay. yeah, uh, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> So to me, this has been a really beautiful evening because first and foremost, you guys are getting a special treat that very rare that you have people from such radically different fields in a kind of a high level conversation. But what's beautiful about this is that it goes back to uh, what Socrates would call sort of dialectic. And that's where you have you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Well, that's the basic, I think, premise of how things move forward. We have such a partisan and strange time right now where you know, like I said earlier, reality has a liberal bias, like facts kind of matter. So to me at least, how we think about uh, science right now is gonna be critical for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years out. And these kind of conversations, I think, are really critical for how getting a better conversation. So it's a real pleasure to be here on my birthday. I, I could have been pretty much anywhere in the world on my birthday, by the way. And I was like, let's hang out with some early, you know, science geeks for a quick second and have a glass Woo! of wine. Yeah. So, cheers. 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 Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank <laughs> you.